Hello and welcome to the Simone Goose Podcast. This is episode 54 and this is our latest interview with Dr. Alistair McConaughey on COVID-19. Now, this was a great interview. It lasts over an hour, so we've split it into two episodes and part two will be out in a couple of days' time. We're also very excited to announce a partnership with Continuous.com. That's Continuous.com, where you can access courses and lectures with the leading speakers and researchers in the world in critical care and emergency medicine. And we're excited to tell you more about that in the coming episodes. But let's just jump right in. So I'm here again with Dr. Alistair McConaughey. This is part four. We're nearly a year since we started. Did we know we would I'm not sure when we started, we we realized what was ahead of us, did we? But here we are, a year down the line. And I guess this is a further update. I guess a little chance to review some of what we've spoken about before and the changes that we have experienced or the things that we now know since our last update. So let's just jump right back in. So let's uh, start off with mortality and morbidity. So let's, any further data, what, what do we know? Who is dying and why or what has changed since we last spoke? I, I, I think the landscape's changed in, you know, hugely since we first spoke a year ago. Uh, I I find myself now, and, I, and I've said this to you, and I, I find myself, I wouldn't regard myself as an expert when it comes to COVID. I'm a, a kind of jobbing ID physician who's dealt with a lot of it, but it's become, we have generated so much data about the illness that there are people who are genuinely real experts in certain aspects of this. Um, one of the one of the huge databases that we've generated is is looking at the illness itself, the natural history of the illness, what 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 the risks are for mortality and indeed morbid morbidity, particularly in hospitalised uh, patients. So we, I think we've I think we've learned a huge amount about that. I would reference people to the ISARIC database, I S A R I C, um, if you just. Uh, tap it into Google, you'll find Isaric, uh, the 4C database, which is a, a huge consortium uh, putting together essentially a prospective database looking at different clinical and non-clinical characteristics that correlate initially with mortality, but more recently published data on uh, morbidity and certainly really good data on the risk of hospitalised patients deteriorating. So what is it that that should worry you about your patient and and the risk of them deteriorating, and that that data is hugely useful because clearly it leads into escalation discussions earlier. Um, I guess we're probably going to go into talk about a whole bunch of treatments, so it gives you some steer in terms of how aggressive you're going to be in treating it, and it importantly really informs those kind of discussions with patients and families about expectations and and what have you so i would reference people to the isaric database it's there's a huge amount of stuff there for me the headlines are age age is a really close correlate with risk of doing badly the older you are the higher your risk of ending up in hospital the higher your risk of requiring HDU, ITU support, the higher your risk of death. And and age kind of outstrips everything. We've always kind of throughout this worried about, you know, different populations of people, people with cancer, people with immunosuppressant medication and all the rest of it. And yes, you know, these people probably have a higher risk, but it doesn't come near your risk if you're over the age of 70 in particular. Um, And I think that's really, really important when we, you know, think about our patients and, and and who we should be protecting it's clearly 
it's clearly driven the kind of vaccine programme and the way in which we've done the vaccine programme. Um, so yeah, that for me the big the big correlate is with uh, is with age. And the new variants haven't changed that significantly. Probably not at this stage. Um, there was some early data to suggest that, particularly with the 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 kind of uh, the first B variant, the B one one seven, sometimes known as the Kent variant, that that became very prevalent um, in the south of England. There was some early data to suggest that people who got this had higher rates of hospitalisation, were being hospitalised at younger ages. I mean, I mean, you're talking about folk in their kind of 40s and 50s, um, that there were a higher proportion of women requiring um, oxygen and HDU care than previously, uh, and, and a suggestion of higher mortality. I've not seen any definitive data on that. Um, and, and obviously that sort of data is is heavily open to being confounded just because it's become the predominant clonal uh, virus and it's spreading among, amongst a certain population. So, you know, for example, we are now seeing folk in their 40s and 50s coming into hospital. And that's probably because the predominant way that a lot of people are catching it is in the workplace now, folk going into work. Um, less working from home, so there's a huge amount of biases there. But I think certainly for the for the the kind of B117, there isn't any good data to suggest increased severity. The South African variant, you know, the the B1351, I think remains remains to be seen. Um, the suggestion there is that it's not necessarily more severe disease, but certainly way more transmissible. Um, okay, that's great. Has the morbidity data kind of introduced or discovered any interesting findings? Um, I, a couple of things. I think anyone who's listened to this who's looked after COVID patients uh, will appreciate how much diabetes is being unmasked. Uh, I accept this may be a peculiarly West of Scotland thing, but uh, but I suspect it's not. So we're, we're seeing a lot of people who not previously known to be diabetic. They come into hospital with COVID, I guess severe COVID by definition. They're getting six milligrams of dexamethasone a day for up to 10 days, sometimes a bit longer. Um, and suddenly when we monitor their blood sugars, they, they have blood sugars that are well within the diabetic range. And we're, we're using a lot of um, oral hypoglycemics, a lot of insulin to control blood sugars. What's interesting is it's probably not all steroids. There's a suggestion now that COVID itself induces an element of um, insulin resistance. Uh, and it's certainly, I, I think a huge amount of work has been generated from diabetic colleagues, or my diabetes colleagues, even not my diabetic colleagues, uh, my colleagues in diabetes, uh, from, from COVID, uh, just because we've unmasked so much and, you know, routinely when I see people in the ward now I'm documenting their oxygen saturations their respiratory rate and what day of illness they are and what their kind of lunchtime BMs are given that I've given them six milligrams of dexamethasone in the morning so I, I think I think we are uncovering a lot of diabetes clearly it's an illness which is very common in the part of the world that I and just to be practice. clear it's uncovering diabetes rather than causing or contributing to the onset of diabetes it's I, I the way uh, and others may have better handle on this. My my kind of take on it is that we've got a bunch of people who 
probably have impaired glucose tolerance, pre-diabetes, whatever you want to call it, and then they catch COVID, and that plus or minus the the kind of steroids that I'm giving them is enough to to uncover. The vast majority of these people will go home on some form of diabetic medication, a few on insulin, a lot on kind of oral hypoglycemics. I guess time will tell um, over a kind of three, four month follow up, how many of them remain, you know, on treatment for diabetes going forward. So the, the other kind of thing that strikes me is the is the lack of evidence for any secondary bacterial infection. I think it's something that we always worry about with other viral respiratory infections, particularly flu, um, but it's exceedingly rare in the context of COVID. Um, the, the kind of official data would suggest that less than 4% of people with COVID get secondary bacterial infection. I suspect there'll be more data coming out quite soon that will show it's even less than that. Um, and there's never been a kind of publication case series of patients with secondary bacterial pneumonia. And given how much data is being acquired, I think we would have seen it. Um, that is an issue for antibiotic stewardship because we see a lot of people who come in at the front door and, you know, these patients are sick, they're tachypneic, they're febrile, they've got high CRPs, they've got bilateral changes, um, and they often get given antibiotics as, you know, as part of the treatment of that. But, and I, I totally understand that that kind of rationale, but we should, once you've got a COVID diagnosis in these people, we should be stopping antibiotics. The last thing we want to do is, is lump problems with C. diff and other things, you know, antibiotic associated problems on top of that. Um, and a lot of people get quinolones and they've got QT prolongation, they get macrolides, they've got QT prolongation in the background. So there is a danger to doing this. So I would suggest that if you've got someone that comes in with a bilateral consolidation, you haven't got a COVID result and you're waiting for it and they're febrile and tachycardic and you want to give them antibiotics, then fine. But once that COVID result comes back and it's positive, you can stop the antibiotics. They're really not adding much. So there must obviously be a wee bit more data now about long-term impacts. Obviously, we, we got introduced to long COVID um, early on, but obviously we now know more the, the further we get from the origin of the disease. So what, what, what do we know uh, about the longer-term impacts? I think in terms of hospitalised patients, we know that patients are going to feel quite tired, quite probably an element of breathlessness, particularly exertional dyspnea for a good four or five weeks after discharge. And it's what I always kind of counsel patients about. Um, we know that gets better. Long COVID, I think it's I think it's difficult. I My take on this, and this may not be a, a, a popular view, but my take on this is what we are seeing is a post-viral fatigue syndrome. And, and I see people with post-viral fatigue syndrome. Um, and for what it's worth, I totally accept that it, that is a clinical condition that requires uh, investigation and management. But never before have we had such a huge amount of viral infection in the population um, all at one time in the context of a pandemic and had the ability to monitor what happens to people afterwards. And therefore, it's no surprise, or it shouldn't be of any surprise, that we have a sizable proportion of people who have very long-term problems after significant viral infection. Um, whether it's different from any other post-viral fatigue syndrome, I guess we don't know at this point. I do have 
kind of slight concerns about these labels, though. And, and you know, as, as someone who gets referred people with post-viral fatigue syndrome, the important thing that I can contribute is making sure that there isn't anything else going on because we, we do see people who've been labelled with chronic fatigue syndrome, post-viral fatigue syndrome, particularly ones who've got kind of some Lyme serology, which is which is flagged up maybe previous exposure to Lyme. And, you know, doctors are humans. And, and once we get fixated on one diagnosis, there is a real temptation for all of us, myself included, to kind of stop thinking a wee bit. Um, and given the amount of COVID in the population, I think the challenge for us as doctors going forward is, is going to be maintaining suspicion that other things can cause people symptoms and, and checking that up. And I think in terms of, of the whole healthcare system, we're, we're going to have to regard this as an opportunity to develop proper therapeutic interventions for, for post-viral fatigue, long COVID, whatever that may be. So where are we with with treatments? Anything anything new? So I think the last time we spoke, we'd, we'd mentioned remdesivir as an antiviral agent and, and the evidence really not suggesting any improvement in, in mortality with it. Uh, and I think that still holds. There's still a feeling that in the first week of illness, you know, any type of antiviral treatment may be beneficial, but I don't think we've got the, the data in that context. Look at it. And that holds for remdesivir. That holds for things like um, convalescent serum. The recovery study still has monoclonal antibodies in, in that study and is waiting, you know, I presumably will report on that data um, once it has sufficient data. So I think in terms of antiviral medication, we're probably no further forward is the right way to put that. We do know that when people end up in hospital, it tends to be a very characteristic first week of illness at home, start of the second week, start to feel breathless, end up in hospital, hypoxic oxygen requirements, evolving um, often bilateral uh, consolidative change. And that, you know, is probably predominantly a, a kind of immunological phenomenon, collateral damage whatever you want to call it. So we it's probably no surprise that the agents that we found help are those that kind of somehow moderate the immune response to the virus. So steroids, dexamethasone has the biggest data for it, but so does hydrocortisone. There's some data for prednisolone. My personal view is it probably doesn't matter, but six milligrams of dex, 40 milligrams of, of prednisolone is probably about right for anyone who has an oxygen requirement. Tocilizumab is is interesting. The initial uh, remap cap uh, study that looked at its use in critical care setting, and that was not just ITU. That and about I think maybe wrong, but about sixty percent of those patients are actually in what we would call HDU in the UK. Um, showed a significant reduction in mortality uh, when tocilizumab was given in the first kind of 24 hours of that admission to critical care and then more recently obviously in the last couple of weeks um, recovery has shown that that a uh, improvement in mortality holds even if you're not in critical care and you're up on the ward so I think the number needed to treat for about 25 to save one life um, giving uh, tocilizumab in addition to dexamethasone so really in the last week we've started using toki on the wards as well. But recovery continues. I think it's got aspirin in it, it's got colchicine in it, it's got uh, monoclonals in it, um, it's got various other 
kind of antiviral and immunomodulatory treatments in it. So in terms of a hospital population, that you know, these are the treatments that we would use. There's a whole variety of stuff being used in primary care, kind of pre-hospital, and that's I think is going to be very interesting um, to see if any antivirals or immunomodulatory therapy can prevent admission. Um, so favipiravir, which is a kind of um, anti-flu, a newer kind of anti-flu agent. Uh, one of my colleagues, Janet Scott's just starting to do that study in primary care. They're looking at ivermectin. They're looking at a whole variety of different agents. Um, and I'm sure that we'll get some data from that at some point in the near future. And what about the variants? Now, there's a lot of talk, and it seems we can't keep up with different variants every week. Um, what does that mean? How would you summarise it? it? Does it seem to be evolving quicker than most viruses? Is that a worry, or is this kind of standard? Okay, so the first thing to say about variants is this is totally expected. This is nature. This is Darwinism. Um, there will be selective pressure on certain mutations to be beneficial to the virus, and then we will see that change. So this should not come as any surprise. It's entirely expected. The interesting thing about COVID is, and a lot of coronaviruses, is that they have proofreading enzymes. So they actually, what a proofreading enzyme does is it uh, mops up any mutations or mops up a percentage of mutations. And what that means is that COVID actually mutates quite slowly. It's about one to two amino acid changes a month, which is really quite slow in, in, terms, of, in terms of viruses. So this is inevitable. I think it's maybe slightly unfair that the kind of Kent variant or the, you know, the B117 got that, that kind of reputation you know, known across the world as the English variant um, or British variant. Uh, over 50% of the viral genomes submitted to the WHO kind of genome database come from the UK. And that's because COG UK has been an amazingly successful um, venture. You get all the whole bunch of academic institutions in the UK to come together and work together and, and do wide-scale sequencing of COVID. It's a phenomenal thing, um, COG UK, and, and therefore they pick it up. So I guess the good thing from a UK context is that if there is any significant mutations, we're more than likely to know about it because we've got that, that system. The worry about mutation is that it obviously it does a number of things. Does it um, change the severity of the illness? Does it change the ability of the virus to transmit? Does it affect the efficacy of any treatments that we give? Um, does it increase the risk of reinfection for those who've been infected previously? And I guess on the same tack, does it does it affect vaccine um, efficacy? So the, these are the these are the kind of things that that we worry about with um, with variants. And I guess wide-scale vaccination in the population on a very simple level is a significant selective pressure to apply to the virus in the UK at the minute. So we'll find out. The, from a kind of vaccine point of view, the worry is more the South African variant, the, the B1351, or the, the, we're not allowed to call it the Brazilian, because that can mean different things, um, but the, the, um, the P variants that were first described in actually first described in Japan, I think, in 
visitors who'd, who'd returned from Brazil, but are kind of mostly identified in the Amazonas region of Brazil. Um, and the, the South African and the Brazilian variants contain a, a particular mutation. It's called E484K um, from the amino acid substitutions. And that, that particular variant affects the, the, the kind of binding of the virus to the ACE receptor and affects the confirmation of that uses salt bridges for those who know of such things, which which can really affect the, the ability of antibodies to get in and and have any effect on the virus. And and that's the the kind of crux of the concerns about the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, I suspect the same will be found for other vaccines as well. Although interestingly, um, so the Johnson Johnson vaccine yesterday announced that they had effectiveness against the the South African variant. So it's, I, I think it's that particular mutation which worries in terms of vaccines. So what makes a strain more transmissible? And does that have any implications for us and current PPE? Yeah, so the, the, we know that the, the kind of strain that was first identified down in the south of England, the Kent strain, um, binds much more avidly to the ACE receptor. And it's thought that that ability to bind much more avidly increases its transmissibility. So I guess on a very simple level, you may require to be exposed to less virus in order to get sufficient binding to, to cause clinical infection, because presumably there's an infectious load for this virus. We just don't know it yet. So... So that is what increases the transmissibility. That's what kind of increases that um, kind of seventy percent more transmissible. Um, so is that a slight misnomer? Is it actually more transmissible, or it's just more infective? Because I think the word transmissibility gave a sense of it's more transmissible in the air. It's potentially more airborne. It's more easily to transmit through the air. And in which case, I think there was concern around PPE masks. Is that the issue? So is that think, not the yeah. case? So, or do we know? We don't know is the honest answer. So it's, there's a lot of conjecture. So you could theorize that someone who's infected with that, with that particular uh, kind of strain if you like although we don't talk about strains of viruses but that that particular mutation type they will still liberate the same amount of virus into um into the atmosphere around about them in whatever way fomites or coughing or whatever and but because you coming into contact with that person are being exposed to a virus that will bind to you much more avidly, then your risk of infection is higher. Um, and I guess what you're getting at is I'm not sure that there's any evidence that these mutations increase the ability of an individual to aerosolize the virus. And that, that's the important thing. I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about PPE in particular, use of respirator masks. You have to remember the difference in a respirator mask is the fact that it protects you against aerosolized particles. Um, so, so I don't think the mutation increases the risk of aerosolization, but it may mean, I guess, on a very simple level that if you come into contact with the virus, you're more likely to have sufficient of it infecting you to cause clinical disease. Well, let's just move on to then uh, staff safety. 
I guess things that have happened since we last spoke was lateral flow testing, and, and we wanted to also talk about masks. Where, where do you want to begin? Do you want to, do you want to start there? It's probably a good place to begin by looking at some data that shows us what our risk is as healthcare workers. And it's it's interesting. So this is data that was published in the BMJ, I think it was October uh, last year. And it's data from Public Health Scotland looking at the risk of healthcare workers infected in what's kind of known as the first wave. So this is kind of March to June, July last year. Um, and essentially, if you are a patient-facing healthcare worker, then you have a hazard ratio of 3.3 compared to background population of being admitted to hospital with COVID. Um, If you are the household contact of a patient-facing healthcare worker, then you have a relative risk of 1.8 for being admitted to hospital with COVID. So that seems like quite a big hazard ratio, but you have to to remember it's a hazard ratio based on a low absolute risk. So the low absolute risk for a healthcare worker or household contact being admitted to hospital is somewhere around about 0.06 to 0.2%. So it's a significant increase in relative risk on a low absolute risk, but it's definitely there. There is no doubt that that of all the of all the kind of essential workers, if you like, I'm not sure I particularly like that phrase, but you know, those of us who've had to continue working throughout this in a kind of face-to-face way, not working remotely, um, there's no doubt that that's the highest hazard ratio. And interestingly, if you work as a healthcare worker at the front door of the hospital. Um, so you're seeing unselected patients, you are at the highest risk. You're at higher risk than those working in areas with aerosol generating procedures, and you're at higher risk than those working in uh, intensive care units. So it's those of us doing acute receiving, ED, medical wards, surgical wards, where you're taking unselected patients in that are at the highest risk. And I guess that leads nicely into PPE and masks, etc. So let's start with a question. We asked our audience for some questions, so I'll introduce the first one, which comes from Philip Munro. Um, So he asked, did we get PPE decisions right at the different stages? To him, it always felt reactive with us being too slow to adopt universal mask wearing in all areas. Should we have adopted higher level PPE for dealing with all patients thought to have a high likelihood of covid so I've I've said this before, and, and and I guess what I'm about to say is going to be a common theme that leads on to to future questions about types of masks. It really worries me that masks have become kind of symbolic of PPE in some ways. Masks are important, um, but are they any more important than wearing a gown, wearing an apron? Uh, wearing gloves, washing your hands, decontaminating your hands? And the answer to that is probably not for the majority of of cases. Have we been reactive? Yeah, absolutely. Completely reactive. But I guess that's inevitable given the nature of a a new illness that we're just kind of finding our way with and and discovering new things things about. Um, The other thing is to remember that a large proportion, if not the majority of healthcare workers who've been infected up to now have not caught it from their patients. They've caught it from their colleagues. Um, so it's it's one thing to be really concerned about PPE, but you know, we like I'm very keen that we can't remove ourselves from any 
responsibility here and um I still see people sitting about in groups of four or five, certainly where I work, having lunch, chatting away to each other and putting themselves at risk. So so I think I I, I think the whole personal protective thing is a is a package of measures. In terms of masks, um I think we probably were a bit slow to to adopt universal mask wearing but less because of risk from our patients and more because of our risk to our patients. Um, that's the predominant reason for us wearing fluid repellent surgical masks is to stop us um, or to mitigate the risk of us infecting our patients who by definition are a vulnerable group and also to reduce the risk of us infecting each other when we're on ward rounds and, and working closely with each other. Um, where are we slow to do that? I think we probably were, um, and I'm probably one of the ones that, you know, was always sceptical about masks, but, but sceptical in the context of forgetting all the other stuff. So I think uh, the, the last wee bit of what Philip had asked was about higher levels of PPE for, for, for dealing with higher risk patients, not necessarily during AGPs. Is, what, what's your feeling on that? If, if we have a high risk patient, should we be putting on an FFP3? So... I, I think the honest answer to that is we don't know. Um, there's two things we need to think about. What's changed in terms of risk and what does that mask add? Probably the latter is easier to deal with first. So when we talk about FFP3 or indeed FFP2 masks, we're talking about masks that filter out aerosols, so small particles which are suspended in the air. FFP2 mask will filter out 95% and FFP3 mask, I think, is in excess of 99% of aerosols. So that's what, they, that's what they add in terms of protection. There is an evolving database, and this study has not been published yet. That's been one of the problems is there's a lot of highlighting of studies to the popular press without them actually being peer-reviewed. But there's the coughing study. Um, which looked at aerosol generation from people who cough and found that you can, can generate up to 10 times more aerosols by coughing than you do from high-flow nasal oxygen or NIV. And of course, in clinical situations where we use high-flow nasal oxygen and where we use PPE, when we use NIV, we get people to wear respirator masks, so FFP3 masks. And therefore, if that data is correct, there's no reason to suggest it isn't, but if that data is correct, then it, I get that it follows that we should be wearing FFP3 masks for patients who have symptomatic COVID who are coughing. There is a downside to that, and, and the downside to that is that I can quite easily do a three-hour ward round with a fluid repellent surgical mask on and I've got used to it now, and it's quite easy. It's very different to do that with an FFP3 mask on. And remember, if we're going to wear FFP3 masks, they have to be non-valved, because it's got a valve in it, then I'm not protecting my patients from me. So it has to be non-valved, which makes them uncomfortable. Whether I could keep it on for that length of time, they do it in critical care. Speak to some of your critical care colleagues about what that feels like. Um, it doesn't. It's not easy. And it's not without its risks. And I've got a kind of personal perspective on this. So I, I managed to catch COVID eventually um, at the beginning of December. And I am pretty sure where I caught that, 
I caught that having done 12 straight days at work, doing a post-take ward round in our COVID area. And I caught myself on at least three occasions scratching my nose underneath my mask. Now, if I've caught myself doing that three times, I've probably done it 10, 20 times. Tell myself to stop doing it. Um, and then almost exactly four days later, I become symptomatic with COVID. Um, an FFP3 mask would not have protected me in that in that instance. Um, it may have made it worse because it was less comfortable. So I think we have to see PPE as an entire package. And my concern about being overly focused on the mask is that we forget all the other stuff. PPE is a package, and that package includes the apron, it includes the gloves, and it includes social distancing um, from your colleagues. The other slight thing with aerosolization, as well as the coughing study, is this concept of super spreaders. We know that other coronaviruses have super spreader events, so large scale infection events um, from individuals who are regarded as super spreaders. So we saw this with SARS, um, a huge outbreak in Hong Kong, I think it was the Hotel Metropole, I think it was a huge outbreak from a super spreader event. And we have seen it with MERS in South Korea, where they had 600 cases from a hospital outbreak due to a super spreader event. So there's no reason to suggest that uh, CoV-2 should be any, um, SARS-CoV-2 should be any different. Um, and therefore, there's a feeling that there are individuals who are super spreaders. Why the super spreaders? We don't know. Do they just, are they more likely to aerosolize when they cough? you know, these sort of things, and you can't readily detect these people. So so there is an evolving evidence base to suggest that maybe we should be wearing FFP3 masks when we're in patient contact, but that, that comes at a cost. What about lateral flow testing? What, what, what have we gained from that, if anything? So I've, I've had to have a real think about lateral flow testing is I think it's fair to say it's taken me a while to get my head around its utility and I've I've kind of changed I think when lateral flow testing was first suggested as a um, as a way of essentially screening healthcare workers uh, for COVID I was very much against it I think the, the lateral flow test is is different so so you're Swabs that you do on patients that you send off to the lab, the swabs that you do and use the point of care machines, point of care testing machines, as in the big plugged into the wall machines that you 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 use. These are nucleic acid testing. So they are testing for viral RNA. They are incredibly sensitive, really, really sensitive. So they are great for diagnosing COVID. The problem is that they're too sensitive. We know that the kind of median time from people being infected and still being PCR positive is about 17 days. And we know that people can remain positive for 90 days after infection. So the test is too sensitive and particularly too sensitive to indicate infectivity because PCR positivity does not necessarily correlate to infectivity. We know that infectivity happens mostly at higher levels of virus, which correlates with a thing called the CT value um, when you do a PCR. Lateral flow testing is different. It is an immunofluorescent assay. So that's where you do your swabs, you put it in the buffer, and then that's 
uh, put into the wee slide, a bit like a pregnancy test or a malaria rapid diagnostic test, these sort of things, and you wait for uh, a period of time for bands to come up to give you a result. So that's an immunofluorescent assay. My concern about that is that it lacks sensitivity. So at high levels of virus, low CT values on PCR, at high levels of virus, it's probably equivalent to PCR. But once you get below a certain threshold of virus, its equivalence to PCR drops off a cliff. It falls really rapidly. So it's not sensitive. And what's taken me a wee while to get my head around, and now I, I think lateral flow testing for healthcare workers makes perfect sense. And the reason I think that is because the point at which the lateral flow test sensitivity drops off the cliff is the point at which the amount of virus probably drops below the level of infectivity, i.e. a positive lateral flow test is a really good measure of infectivity, but not whether you've been infected, if that makes sense. And that's probably important because if we did PCRs on all our healthcare staff, half of us would be off all the time from, you know, having bits of virus detected, but are not necessarily infective. And clearly that's not good for patients either. So I think lateral flow test is important. The caveat to all of that is that there is data to show that it's quite operator dependent. So the less experience you are at doing lateral flow tests, the less sensitive that test is. But I guess the theory is the more you do it, you're doing it twice a week, that you become better better at it. The important thing to say to everyone is, if you have symptoms, get a PCR test. Do not, absolutely do not rely on a negative lateral flow test to tell that you don't have COVID. If you have symptoms, go get a, get a PCR test because its, it's sensitivity is not sufficient for that.